Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the summer of 1914, after the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand threatened to engulf Europe in violence, the workers of the world were faced with the question of war or peace. That August, with war fever at its hottest, the German Social Democratic Party threw its weight behind the war. It cleared the way for a continent-wide conflagration. That decision cut squarely against Karl Marx's prediction that the working class would refuse to go to war against itself, that class solidarity was stronger than nationalist solidarity. Now, to be fair to his friend Frederick Engels, in 1887, after Marx had died, Engels did in fact forecast just such a war, writing, No war is any longer possible for Prussia, Germany, except a world war, and a world war indeed of an extent and violence hitherto undreamt of. Eight to ten millions of soldiers will massacre one another and in doing so devour the whole Europe until they have stripped it barer than any swarm of locusts has ever done. Only one result is absolutely certain general exhaustion, and the establishment of the conditions for the ultimate victory of the working class. But in 1914, once the German Workers' Party approved of the war, so did the rest of the European Socialist Parties, as they had little choice at that point. From there, Engels' prediction came half true. It did unleash undreamt violence, and it did create the conditions for working class revolution, but they only succeeded in Russia while they were put down in Germany. All of this is explored in a new podcast called Hinge Points, hosted by Matt Christman and Danny Besner, that takes historical moments and asks the question, what if? In this case, what if the leadership of the German Social Democrats had decided not to vote to approve the war credits? This type of counterfactual musing is frowned upon by serious historians, but I'm not a serious historian, so I happily smile on it. I think it's not only an engaging way to learn about historical events, but it's also a useful creative exercise to get you thinking about what kind of world is possible and what kind of world isn't. It can help us think about what's possible today in what has become a deeply confusing era. That confusion follows the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, which was followed a decade and a half later by the financial crisis and a decade after that by a pandemic. What kind of world is possible emerging from that and what is our role in creating it? To work through this, I'm joined by the hosts of Hinge Points. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much for having us. Yes. Yeah, so and so, Dan, so Danny Bresner, he's he's the co-host of the American Prestige podcast, also a foreign policy professor at the Scoop Jackson School at the University of Washington. Do I have that right? Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> Excellent. And Matt Chrisman is co-host of the podcast uh, Chapo Trap House. Um, so you're both collectively doing the podcast hinge points now you know how did how did this how did this come about what 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 drove you to launch this project well, I think Matt and I have, um, you know, become friends and we're both kind of history nerds. Uh, I got a PhD in European and American history and Matt has been reading history his entire life. And in particular, Matt does this type of historical thinking that I think is really valuable, which is this type of 
really big historical thinking, macro political thinking, looking at big structures from 30,000 feet. And that's really not a type of historical thinking that one is able to do in the American Academy. Um, the American Academy, as many people might know, is incredibly specialized. And to advance your career in the historical profession, you really have to focus on something narrow. So just for me, as someone who's an academic, it was just refreshing and fun to talk to Matt about these sorts of large, big questions that we have about history and particularly about where we are in 2021. And over the course of the last year or so, just having these conversations really made us seem, um, it's made it seem to us that there was really a space for this type of um, big historical thinking to discuss in a public forum, particularly when it came to the the, um, the fate of the left and where the left finds itself in 2021. So we found ourselves talking about these historical hinge points. And that was really the genesis, at least for my end of this uh, project. Yeah, we're, we want, it's like a, I've said before, it's like an autopsy of like the the human civilizational project as we're sort of living in the corpse of it. Yeah, and you've the kind of a, Matt, a, a running theme of yours for for a while now has been kind of the the pervasive sense of just fundamental powerlessness that that so many people feel, and and you've talked a lot about the way that that expresses itself in our politics. You know, pushing people into polarized camps shouting at each other in a culture war that like the only point of the war is to is to fight it so that people can ignore the fact that they can't actually do anything about their right. material or reality. And so right. did did this podcast sort of flow out of that a little bit? Like, all right, if we can't do anything right now, at least we can learn from what went wrong in the past so that For if there me, is a chance. Uh, it definitely was because I found myself in a situation of you know, having this absolutely accidental and, and baffling and frankly probably uh, immoral job of talking about politics at this point in history and and feeling like I didn't really have a lot to say about what should happen or what the, the contours of the moment are just because of how uh, stultified everything feels and how how much it feels as though we are in a fallow period in, in many ways that not, not not assuming that doesn't assume that there's going to be that that's going to persist. In fact, I think it can't persist, uh, but it does limit your ability to be useful, really, if you're focusing on the, the politics of the moment, because as you pointed out, the politics of the moment are are illusory. So for myself, if I wanted to say anything that I thought could be interesting, uh, or that might be interesting to other people, it would be to look backward and to identify those moments of contingency and where things happen one way that could have gone another way, and just imagining the possibilities that existed and that were foreclosed upon. Because if you can identify and, and dissect those moments in the past, it allows you to apply that thinking to the moment that you live in. And, and remember that uh, every moment is, is filled and suffused with possibilities, and that only after events have coalesced after an action has been taken, can you really say that something is fully determined? And since we are living in, you know, we're always living in a moment of contingency because we don't know where where this is all going to go. Uh, thinking about previous moments of contingency, not only let us see what matters, uh, but how we can think about identifying what matters around us. And as of now, you've put out two episodes so far. I, I don't want to rehash them since people can and should go listen to them. They're, they're enjoyable, even though they're, you know, deep kind of deep dives into very, you know, discrete periods of, 
of time. The first first one you do looks at the uh, German Social Democratic Party's decision to basically approve, you know, effectively vote for World War One, send send you know, put war credits, but get behind the the war effort. Right. And then and then the second one looks at uh, the German Revolution, nineteen eighteen and nineteen nineteen. Again, the Social Democrat Party plays this this interesting role in it. And I learned a, a great German word. Uh, Danny, do I have it right? Dickenbosen? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Dickenbunsen, which basically means like the fat bigwigs. <laughs> right. So, and we, we, you know, we have these in in the U.S. These are the kind of the the labor bosses who you know have grown grown fat on the on the dole of the workers' pay. Who was it that had the famous quote? Nothing is too good for the working class. Samuel Goppers, baby. Samuel <laughs> Goppers, when he was criticized for being too fat of a fat cat. So you talk about how. The workers organize themselves into this party structure. Necessarily, as a result of that, they they have these fat cats on top of them. And so when the decision comes to be made, the material reality that the fat cats, the, the Dick and Boonson are living in, affects their decision making because now all of a sudden they have a lot to lose and they're, they're not engaged in the alienating aspect of labor. Yes. Yes. Then in the second episode, it comes back in an interesting way in, in the way that this revolution this is a spontaneous revolution that is able to be crushed, you know, not just by the Dick and Boonson, who are, are now in government, but also by the fact that there is no kind of coordinated leadership the way that there was in the in the Soviet Union. So it, it set up this contradiction. Tell me if you think I'm saying this, saying this right, that without an organized leadership, you can't, you know, pull off a revolution. But with an organized revolution, the leadership doesn't want to make a revolution. Right. Right. Yeah. And this is the ultimate problem, I think, that that socialist parties face in parliamentary democracies and, and throughout the history of modernity. And I just think to take a step back, the larger question that we're trying to ask in those two episodes and in an additional one that'll come later um, is what happens when the working class didn't do what some Marxists and Marx himself perhaps thought they would do, which was essentially unite across national boundaries and not kill each other in the maelstrom of World War One. And, and I think that without even thinking about it, Matt and I focused three of our first episodes on uh, this problem because in, in, in a real sense, I think we're living in the hangover of that problem. What what happens if the proletariat doesn't become conscious of itself and, and do what it's supposed to do and lead this sort of a communist socialist revolution? Uh, and so I think from that question, we, we again, then got into questions of like the literal mechanisms of party leadership and, and who's, um, who's acting on behalf of the workers, um, how are they acting on behalf of the workers? And how does their, what might be termed their bourgeoisification, inform the strategic decisions that were made both in 1914 and then 1918 uh, slash 1919 during these German revolutions? Um, and I think this is the, the fundamental tension of the entire thing, which is you, you do need that sort of coordination, but it needs to be a coordination that's directly connected to sort of the lived experience of alienated labor. But that is not an experience that one has when one becomes essentially an administrator of a political party. And I think this is, you know, you see echoes of this debate across the North Atlantic world and, and throughout the global South as well. Um, and I think you see it, for example, in the United States with debate, uh, debates over the um, you know professional managerial class, the PMC. What role do they have in working class revolution? And I think just uh, history shows that it's it's not an especially effective one. And Matt, you made, a, I thought, an interesting point about the Russian Revolution that because 
the revolutionaries, the Bolsheviks, you know, were essentially criminalized, mm -hmm. that they had just as much risk not making revolution as they did making one. You know, they weren't right, yeah. they weren't comfortable enough. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, in 1917, uh, the leading edge of the of the connected working class party, the Bolshevik Party, that by over the course of the summer of 1917, as as the provisional government lost legitimacy, was able to consolidate significant support among a majority of the active workers in the critical cities. Were, was led by people who, if a revolution didn't happen, would probably have all been executed or at the very least been had to flee back into exile, which was just not a situation that uh, existed for the leaders of the center of mass of German workers in the cities uh, uh, who were SDP bureaucrats who had been a part of a legal party for a generation and who had well ensconced themselves in the uh, structures uh, of the uh, of the German bourgeois state at that point. And you, you talked about how in, in 1919 there was, what was it called, a cat putsch? The cat putsch? The cap putsch, yeah. yeah. The cap putsch, yeah. So basically a right-wing coup. Yeah, sort of a Kornilov affair for, uh, for post-war Germany, yeah. Yeah, and so it made me wonder, if there was no Kornilov affair in, in the summer of 17, do you then not get the consolidation and the, and the support behind the Bolsheviks that fall? I think that that's very likely. Uh, but of course, the, 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 the thing to point out there is that the Kornilov affair was in large part or orchestrated by Alexander Kerensky. Right, right, as you his know, own play, like, right? Like the, the thing about the Bolshevik Revolution and, and the absurdity of people who want to blame the Bolsheviks for taking power uh, is that uh, they were only allowed to take power by the, the, the repeated and uh, just a stunning uh, inability of any level of power uh, in the Russian state, uh, both uh, the czarists and then the, the provisional government, to do anything like provide a basis for uh, legitimate governance. Although, and we've talked about, we'll talk about this in a future episode that I guarantee you will get a lot of people mad at us, but I'm very excited <laughs> for that to happen. But even in that case, without Lenin showing up uh, when he did, the Bolsheviks probably would not have had the uh, will to to pull off that coup. But, but they're Consolidation of power only happens after the Kornilov affair. But and as we said in the episode about Germany, the cap putsch happens after the creation of the Freikorps, after the suppression of those early uh, revolts, after the suppression of the the Munich Soviet, and doesn't have that galvanizing effect of bringing together uh, a, a a coherent and, and well organized uh, revolutionary party that it, that the Kornilov affair had in Russia. And that I think that just to, to briefly uh, piggyback off that, I think that also has to do with the relative levels of development in two societies. In some sense, yes. it's really not uh, the most useful thing to compare what happens in Germany with what happens in uh, the Russian Empire. Uh, one, because the conditions were just very uh, different, and, and perhaps most importantly, from the perspective of Marxist theory, their levels of development were just uh, totally different. And what we talk about in that future episode, I think people will get mad at us, is uh, what did it mean for the international left to be centered? in uh, Russia slash the Soviet Union. And, and we come, uh, we, we approach that question in, um, uh, in an interesting way that I hope people will at least find compelling and worthy of discussion. And, and also just that we don't, we try not to moralize it. And I think what makes it no, not at all. easy to talk about is just how much more so than the German Revolution, which was really stillborn, uh, the Russian Revolution 
is incredibly contingent. At several points, you can see things going in a drastically different direction, which raises the question, well, okay, imagine those things had changed, then what new contours emerge in the working class struggle for self-awareness and power that would be happening all across the world, no matter what, in the crisis following the end of World War I? I, yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about that, the Russian Revolution, um, and I don't want to steal too much thunder from a future future episode, but because I do agree with you that that it was so contingent on Lenin and Trotsky pushing their crew, you know, to to make this revolution, and then also making sure that they didn't cave in the in the days following and and op- open themselves up to a giant socialist coalition government, you know, that would have just been a retread of the of the failed provisional government. Yeah. It's, you know, it did really did seem like a, a force of will, like these guys just winning arguments in yeah in back rooms. Yeah, and so the question then, what if they lose those arguments and you just continue to get a failed kind of liberal democracy in Russia over the next couple of decades? What I'm curious about is what 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 you think that would do to U.S. Uh, this is our question. Policy. Right. Well, I, I think less about you. The way that we approached it was less about U.S. foreign policy and what does that mean for the what might be termed the North Atlantic left writ large. And, and the questions that I think we asked is what if you know international leftism wasn't centered in the Soviet Union, a society at a very different level of development, run by very uh, particular people at a particular time? Um, what is it? What would it mean if uh, leftism didn't become as discredited uh, discredited as it did? Uh, obviously, that effort would have been, I think. Um, undertaken regardless of whether the Bolsheviks seized power in Russia. But what would it have meant if one wasn't able to tar um, you know, U.S. leftists or German leftists or, or French and British leftists with the accusation of being a fifth column of a foreign power? And what would it mean if you know the Western left wasn't oriented in some significant way toward the common turn and other Soviet um, bodies? And I think this is what might, what might annoy people. Um, given uh, our particular approach. And also, uh, what would it mean without, if you didn't have a situation where there is a a profound schism within the working class movement of every Western country over the question of how to orient themselves towards Moscow? Right. And then from the U.S. perspective, do you think that the kind of U.S. war hawks and and the, you know, the ones who are pushing an imperial agenda would be as successful, let's say, pursuing... The Vietnam War, like does is, you know, does China go communist? And it, let's say it does, right? Do, is that enough for the you know the U.S. to go wage war in Vietnam? Is or 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 does the United States start to have a little bit more tolerance for social democratic movements? Like it goes, you know, across as you guys know, across the 20th century, you couldn't you know be for raising taxes, right? In in, in Brazil, without you know risking assassination at the hands of know some some u.s agent or some u.s operative yeah so i think it really changes the course of what's possible in those in all of these countries i think that's precisely right and i think it opens up new opportunities personally i think after world war ii the united states is going to affirm some sort of global hegemony i think that is that is overdetermined once France falls uh, in the summer of 1940. I think that uh, that really freaked out a lot of Americans, and it really refigured what they thought of themselves in in terms of a global scale. Uh, They were going to go outside the Western Hemisphere and even more outside the Philippines. Now, the character 
of that empire, I think, was shaped profoundly by the Soviet Union, and particularly once the, in the autumn of 1949, once China, quote-unquote, falls to the communists and once the Soviets acquire a nuclear weapon. I think that kind of sets the stage for the decades-long Cold War that we had. So what what happens if that if that doesn't happen? I think that you do get an imperial American foreign policy, um, but I think it takes a different form. Vietnam, I'm not sure if you get the, the precise war that happens there, but I do think you get the United States trying to assert dollar hegemony, which of course happened before the end of World War II. And I do think you get the building of bases uh, around the world, but you might get a less virulent anti-socialism domestically. I think you might see something more along the lines of what happened in the United Kingdom with the creation of some form of national health service and, and some more social democratic reforms, though I do think that imperialism is overdetermined. Yeah, Matt, what, what do you what do you think it does domestically to the U.S.? Well, I think what it does, the U.S. and in other countries, is it changes the dynamics of the labor struggle such that when the global crisis of capitalism that was kind of kicked off by World War One and continued through the 20s and 30s, that when the forces array, you know, are, are politically to respond to that, that perhaps instead of there being this international context for communism as, as an alternative to, uh, to capitalism and communism as defined by the actions of the Soviet Union as it builds power and defends itself against an encirclement by capitalist powers bent on its destruction, but rather by specific conditions within these within the countries in question. And if that happens, you might see a completely different axis of conflict, which I do think is inevitable in the 1930s and 40s worldwide, than the one that we ended up with. And I think that's one of the more interesting parts of it is because uh, you could imagine a world where the absence of communism being integrated into the state competitive framework, the way it was after the, the victory of the, the Bolsheviks in, in Russia, rather a still internationalized, deterritorialized working class movement, but that, that still would assert itself in specific national contexts. And, in, and that maybe instead of a world war like the one we got, there is instead a, a kind of collection of intertwining, cascading civil wars. Any other uh, teases you can give about future moments you're going to look at? We're, this one is, this season, I mean, we're thinking of this as the first season. We're, we're probably going to do more. The response has been pretty encouraging so far. But for now, these are mostly pretty modern. They're all, the latest is 19th century with the Lincoln assassination and an alternative reconstruction. The most recent for us is 9-11 and the consequences of that. And then uh, I think our second season will probably go back into uh, the mists of time to find more, yeah, <laughs> uh, more outlandish and 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 frankly, kind of fun counterfactuals. Back when you know things feel the farther back you go, the more the more loose everything feels. And we'll also we also intend to expand beyond the, the broad North Atlantic world in future seasons, incorporating the global South, incorporating areas outside of Europe and the United States. But this one, I think, was really motivated by trying to look back on, on where we are in 2021 from the American political situation in, in the wake of the Bernie defeat. And I think that uh, going forward, as Matt said, we'll go back to antiquity, we'll go to the Middle Ages, Charlemagne will make an appearance, Genghis Khan will make an appearance, yeah. I'm sure, and, and really try to expand our vision in a more macro way. Yeah. Like this season basically assumes that it assumes has overdetermined the triumph of Anglo-American capitalism 
as as the context for uh, global development in the 19th and 20th centuries. And I think in the future, we're going to try to maybe go back and say, okay, well, what could have happened to have prevented that from occurring or, or changed the specific nature of, of capitalism's triumph, that kind of thing. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So to go back to the myths of pre-COVID 2020s, speaking of Bernie's loss, and also speaking of you know, contingent decisions by like roomfuls of, of people, I'm curious to get your take on what happens if Jim Clyburn decides that it's not in his interests to weigh in in South Carolina, and Barack Obama decides it's not in the interests of his legacy to be against uh, this youth's you know, freight train that's barreling out of Nevada, and he's just going to let this play out. And let's let's say that Sanders does fairly well, as he was, you know, he was polling well in South Carolina, coming out of Nevada. He does well there. He does well on Super Tuesday. It's no guarantee, but let's just pretend he wins. Um, how do you how do you feel like some of this year's events would have gone differently? Like, just start with Afghanistan um, if he were in the White House. Well, for me personally, I, I got to balance when I, when we when we're picking like pinch points and things to talk about. I kind of have to balance. You know the the importance of the fate. You know the imposition of uh, of conditions. You know by a certain action, and then the the contingency involved. How how much how few decisions would have had to be different for something significant to be different? You know how many specific choices of individual people and also random events could be changed to get a drastically different outcome? And with Bernie, I I don't see a a lot of plausible alternative. Uh, it's too much. Too much. Th- too many things would have to be different in a way that is not really explicable. Like I can't imagine why Clyburn would not do what he did. It, it, it is in Cly- it is in Clyburn's interest to endorse Biden at that point. There's no world that we live in where Jim Clyburn, in the position he's in, does not want to prevent Bernie from being the nominee. The same thing goes, I think, for Obama. So I can't imagine things being different in that respect. I, I, it does feel like, and that's why I want to look back to when maybe there was more slack in the line and there was more give in the system and there was more moments of possibility. Now, like, there's fluidity around us now, but I don't think it resides at the level of uh, national politics. 
I think that one of the reasons that our politics seems so sterile right now and something that I've been arguing for a bit is that we have the institutions of mass democracy, political parties, the mass media, but the way power actually functions in this society is really located within an administrative state. So that's, I think, a big disconnect is we have things like popular movements like protests against George Floyd's murder and, and you know, all of those things. And it seems like nothing uh, seems to change because we have the appearance of mass politics, but actually the the way power functions is, is more in administrative hyper elite way. So I just wanted to say that. But in terms of been different with Bernie, I mean, just to put my cards on the table, I was a foreign policy advisor to the Bernie campaign. Uh, and so I was thinking a lot about this, you know, when it seemed like he had a real chance. And I, I at least thought that he really did have a real chance. Uh, and one of the things that I think would have would have been undertaken, at least in the realm of foreign policy, where I was located, was that I think you, you would have had for the first time a general uh, strategic reassessment of the entire structure of American hegemony or the American empire. I, I remember one time we were asked to, you know, present blue sky ideas. And what I noticed is that one of the most complicated problems that the left faces, the anti-imperialist left faces, is that uh, in a lot of ways, we don't even know where power is located. It's devolved. The authority of the American state, and it was designed this way consciously, is so devolved, both in terms of its domestic power, but also internationally. So one of the things that I, I wanted to do was literally just create a series of task forces to map this leviathan, to map this, you know, kind of octopus-like structure that that um, is situated around the globe. So I think what would have been one of the most important things is that in those early years of Bernie, you would have gotten an actual power mapping of this incredible structure and an actual reassessment of things like the defense budget, of things like the 750 um, overseas military bases, of things like allowing the uniformed military to have such an influence on U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and that's, I think unique because I, I agree with Matt in this generally. Presidents do have really restricted power, and in some sense, the way that we he and I always put it is that the algorithm has become conscious. But I think one realm where the president does have fair power does relate to American security politics, and I think it, it was a real missed opportunity to re-examine the global hegemonic structure that the United States has been building since 1945, and even more so since 1989. So it's a real shame that he didn't win. And uh, I'm I'm curious how you think about what Biden's been up to this year in the in the context of that kind of static uh, political situation that that you describe, you know, that when we post this podcast, it should be Friday and uh, that this evening, the House will be voting or not voting, depending on how it goes on this Build Back Better bill, you know, what one point seven five, one point nine trillion dollar package that extends the child tax credit. Knocked but, down from three point five trillion. Knocked down. Well, not, Bernie started it at six. Right. Then they passed it through the Senate three point five. Now it's down to, I think one point nine. But they're already telegraphing it'll be knocked down mm -hmm. again if it gets if it gets to the Senate. Yeah. At the at the same time, it includes what six hundred billion in you know climate clean energy stuff, child tax credit, child care subsidies, that sort of thing. How do you think about that type of federal movement in the context of the kind of depression about the overall situation? Uh, I guess, I mean, I guess I, I have a hard time understanding what the ask is of the average American when it comes to mm -hmm. paying attention to and having an investment in like questions like what passes with in the House and Senate, because it is manifestly not in our hands. What is comes what comes out of this bill? Exactly, like we have nothing to say about it, uh, and so 
like as a as an American, like I can hope certainly that there's good stuff in it, and I can hope that that good stuff can help me, uh, and that and that it can impact my life and impact other people's lives. But beyond that, just vague preference for uh, better legislation mm-hmm. rather than worse, the same way that I have a preference for a sunny day rather than a cloudy one. Uh, I don't really know what we're as people supposed to uh, take from it uh, in, 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 from a political perspective, because we are out of the loop. And in it, the contrast with 2008 and 2009 is interesting. In 2008, you had this giant upsurge of enthusiasm uh, and this organized effort to elect Barack Obama. And then, you know, he consciously kind of demobilized uh, people. And we know we know the result of that. But with Biden's election, Biden didn't have to demobilize yeah. anybody. <laughs> nobody's mobilized. There, there was nobody. There was no, be, even before COVID, he would do these Iowa rallies and you'd have 12 people show up. Right. And, you know, half of them would leave saying that they had showed up a Biden supporter and were now on the fence. And that was it. Like, that was the end of the campaign because then COVID hits. Uh, MSNBC signals that the that it's over and he wins and then he stays in Wilmington through November. Doesn't have to do any public interactions after having accumulated just a snowball of gaffes just in the few appearances he did make in Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, yeah, just got to be behind, just be in this ba- bunker. And I think this just shows, again, like we, we often talk about politics in this country in a way that is just absolutely disconnected from how power works. He's not a popular guy. He never was a popular guy. And that's totally unrelated to whether he won the election and how he governs. So I think that's one of the most important things like we on the quote unquote left can do in this moment of our you know absolute lack of influence is really rethink how we, how we even understand politics in this country. We're oftentimes using old language and old models that don't reflect the actually existing structures of the American state. And I do think, you know, I I don't love making pronouncements about what the left should do, but I'll do one anyway. I do think we should actually look at the state and where power actually lies instead of just using the old phrases of like organized protest, because those things I don't think necessarily work in the context of American power in 2021. And if, if I were to struggle to grasp for some, you know, meaning or purpose to what I do with my day every, every, every day, every week, every year, uh, besides entertainment, you know, what's the purpose of this podcast? I think you know, I hope people enjoy listening to it. And I hope people enjoy reading the things I write. But, you know, that that really ought not to be the only only purpose. And I, I guess the best that I could come up with would be that there are impressions. And I'm curious for your take on this. There are impressions that people in the administrative state and people in Congress, you know, have about what people want to happen that have some vague influence on the decisions that they make, perhaps at, only at the margins. Um, is there anything more than that, or, or is even that a reach? I mean, I think that there is a general understanding of what people would prefer to have uh, and would rather have not. I mean, the polling is pretty explicit about what people would like, and, and you can rationally imagine how certain programs would be broadly in, uh, enjoyed by people, whatever their ideological mask that they put on it, they would enjoy experiencing them. And that is a contributing factor to the game theory of, of people in office. But that is the product of real, an ambient like cu- cultural uh, churn. It, it, it cannot be coordinated is the thing. And, and, and that means it's not to be condemned, like pursuing political uh, engagement uh, at the level of you know partisan investments and public expression, 
uh, is not something to be condemned because it's inevitable. What would be the point of condemning something that people are going to naturally want to do to express some sort of control over their lives? And so they're going to do it. You, you can't assume they won't. Uh, and they're going to do it in such a way that expresses this inchoate yearning for the old social democracy that people – that all the structures that we currently live under required to work, to required to uh, – um, required to accumulate legitimacy for the population. Yeah, and just to put a fine point on it, I mean, I think I go back to Marx here, which is, you know, the number one impulse of the science of historical materialism is to understand your moment and how it actually works and how it actually functions. And I think that's something really useful that people in the media who have who have a, a large platform are able to genuinely contribute to, but to, to help their audience appreciate what is actually going on and not necessarily take place in the partisan scrum that, like I think Matt rightly says, we're essentially disconnected from. And we essentially have no real say over what happens in the administrative state and even kind of perversely in Congress at this point. And to, to take it from another angle, maybe another way to get myself out of bed in the morning would be to say that even if this is all spring training, you got to you got to you got to keep loose. No, see, that's yeah. that's exactly it. Is that <laughs> we are all there is no we have a desire to control our destinies. Some of the people in America are always going to imagine that as being political uh, participants. Being a political participant requires knowing something about what's going on politically and having views and having preferences and expressing them, even if it's just by talking to people around a water cooler or posting online or volunteering for a campaign or running themselves or giving money. That's all part and parcel to the experience of being a political subject. And political subjects are going to be essential to any socialist project in any situation. So, Participating in a culture in this fallow moment to to build one political identity over another absolutely is an inevitable and necessary part of the process of, as you said, uh, training and being aware of what the moment calls for. I feel much better now. Thank you. <laughs> no, that, I mean, it's <laughs> the same thing welcome. I tell myself. And I, I, it's, of course, self-justification because who wants to dig ditches? Right. <laughs> but uh, uh, to me, it also seems unavoidable. Like th there is no way to, as a person, which is all we, I think you have, everyone has to assume themselves to be an individual. There is no left in a meaningful sense in this country. So you, you can never say, I want this to happen. And then when you're imagining it, assume a co coordinated group of people carrying it out with you. That. That's not on the table. There's really just your, you doing things, even the, the representations of like significant rupture and conflict with the state that we've seen are the result of individual decisions. Like the George Floyd protests were by and large the decisions of individuals to respond to the specific stresses and outrages of the moment with mass action, but action that's predicated on individual preference rather than some sort of organized Program. coordinated thing. Uh, yeah. Exactly. And absent that, uh, we're just individuals. And if you accept that, it really does humble you. And the good, but the good part of that is that it takes a lot off your shoulders. You really, it isn't really up to you to have the exact correct opinion on everything. Right. It really isn't up to you to see change happen in your lifetime because it probably isn't. What it's up to you to do is to live a life that is, that feels aligned at every axis with the project of determining for yourself and expressing for yourself uh, a individuality, a, a personal identity in align with values, internal and, and social. And from that position, then you can just ask yourself in every axis of your life, 
what should I be doing? But not assume a can opener that says, forget these questions. The, the only real thing is, cha- is, is turning the wheel of history. I can't, cons- I can't approach any of the problems in my life until we have radically altered the relationship between humans uh, and, and capital. That is not anything anyone can assume is going to happen in anything like a near, uh, co- near time frame. What you do have is every other thing in your life that you have to address, and you should. And I think that's also freeing because what Matt's saying, and and we talk about this quite a bit, is that that doesn't mean that you have to define yourself as like a Bolshevik or a Menshevik or a Trotskyite. That that is not ultimately that meaningful in the context of the United States in 2021. So this is actually a freeing impulse, I think, to disconnect yourself from those ultimately identitarian approaches to politics that uh, that are effectively self-branding. And I understand that this is what we all do. You know, I'm on Twitter. I, I get it. We we all like attention and we all like to feel morally right. But but what Matt is saying is really a freeing way to approach politics given the realities of power in 2021 America. Yeah, exactly. Like you, uh, I mean, I understand the argument for why you should have a developed theory of the state, right? But how often in your day-to-day life does that question come up? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, it doesn't make a lot of sense to put a lot of time, effort, and emo- most importantly, in my opinion, emotional investment into determining the question because it really doesn't – you don't have a lot to do with it other than have it as a badge of identity uh, and as a way to, to socially signal, mostly online, but also in, in, in social situations. Uh, it, is, it is in the clouds. So you can have preferences that way. Everyone is going to accumulate preferences, uh, but they can just be that. They don't have to be the locus of your identity and the the, right, the core and of the your thing identity. that you that drives you to action. Because at that level of abstraction, mostly the only action that that level of abstract identity can push you towards is either spectacular acts of self validation, which is for the few and the brave, or uh, totally consequence free, indulgent expressions of of uh, social identity and preening. Uh, in an online format. The, the, those are the only things you can do with something at that level of distance from the questions of your daily life. So people often try to give you advice, say, just just log off, man. But what you're saying is- You can't. No, we're cyborgs. <laughs> Actually, no, you can't log off, but just, just, rela- just, re- just relax and live a good life. Exactly. We yeah. are cyborgs. I actually wrote a little uh, a piece about this for the nation, and I think that's totally uh, as Matt just said. We really are cyborgs. To 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 live in twenty twenty one is to be partially online at least on social media. So that's not really a, an impulse. So much of our our daily sociality. If you already are, I should say, like if you aren't yet, like people can point to. Oh, there's a lot of people who aren't online. Yeah, they have not had the surgery. Basically, <laughs> they have not imbibed the nanobots. Yeah, but it is a very difficult thing to detach yourself from socially radically some sort or absent some sort of radical break of circumstances, which some people are going to carry off. Yeah, the equivalent of a monk. Exactly. Basically, yeah. Like, it, it's very difficult. Most people aren't monks or ascetics. So that's not uh, particularly good advice. And I think what we need to do, as Matt's suggesting, is learn to live with this thing in a healthy way that doesn't... It, it's the emotional part that's a problem. It's just screaming at people online and allowing that to affect you. It's de- developing parasocial relationships with people who you don't know that I think is really unhealthy. So you have to put these things in, in a meaningful perspective, given the political reality of where we are. Yeah, precisely. 
Great. Well, I think we've worked that out. Um, <laughs> We're done here. Uh, so I re really appreciate you guys coming on. Again, the podcast called Hinge Points. Uh, it's it's terrific. Uh, it's much better than thinking about our our current condition, but we're going to continue. <laughs> Uh, we got it. We, we 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 can't go on. We go on. Anything else you'd want to plug? By the way, I guess uh, our 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 respective podcasts, Chapo Trap House over here, and American Prestige over here. Yes, both both excellent listens. Oh, and uh, me and Chris Wade just wrapped up the uh, Hell of Presidents podcast on Stitcher. Last episode came out last week. This Friday at uh, four Eastern, we're going to do a Twitch uh, Q and A. For any questions uh, anybody who listened to that podcast has about presidents, uh, we can go through them. Uh, we can do counterfactuals. Uh, we could read their uh, <laughs> astrological signs. We're, it'll be it'll be a good it'll be a fun wrap up uh, for anyone who listened to that pod. It sounds fun for for people who don't use Twitch much. How do they get there? Uh, Twitch.tv slash Chapo Trap House. You don't have to sign in. You don't have to do anything. It'll just be on the screen. You can ask questions without having to do any icky interaction with the Twitch AI or whatever the fuck. And uh, I totally, that's what I would do. That's for sure. I, I, I do not, I don't have a Twitch account. They can, people can uh, gift me subs all day and I won't be able to do anything with them. Excellent. Well, I look forward to asking what happened if uh, Zachary Taylor had lived. That's a really interesting one because you really could have a civil war on a much accelerated time frame. Mm -hmm. If you do not have Fillmore yep. there to, to, to carry off the, uh, the compromise. That is a very good one. I'll drop it in the chat. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks so much. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. Well, thank you both for being here. That was Danny Besner and Matt Christman. And that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.